Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be talking to Dr. Sharon Bryden about all things veterinary dermatology, particularly focusing on barrier health. Dr. Bryden is a registered specialist in veterinary dermatology. She studied at Murdoch University in Perth, Western Australia, and continued to work there for 10 years. She now provides a mobile dermatology service in Perth and has done this for the past seven years. Hello, Sharon, and thank you for being our very first guest on the Pure Animal Podcast. How are you today? I am really well. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I'm really looking forward to having a chat. Oh, me too. And today we're going to be talking about all things skin with a special focus on the importance of barrier function and barrier health. But before we get started, I just was really curious, um, and I'm sure our listeners are as well, if you can share your story. So what made you want to be a vet? Where did you study? How did you end up as a dermatologist? Oh, okay. So that's going back quite a long time now. (laughs) Um, My grandparents were Yorkshire dairy farmers and they emigrated out to Australia in about the mid-1950s and ended up in a wheat sheep farm out out in the sort of uh, wheat belt corner. So I guess as a child, I grew up on a diet of James Herriot. And oh, me all too. Great and small. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't we all? Yes. <laughs> um, and, you know, I blame him for a completely unrealistic expectation I of what know. family life was going <laughs> to be. So, but still very fun and very, very fond memories for me. So yeah. I think as early as I can remember, I wanted to be a vet and I'm quite a determined person. Um, so that was it. I was just going to work my way to be a vet and sort of heightened when our career guidance advisor at high school said, girls can't be vets. So that oh. set me on quite a strong pathway a to like prove him wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, um, I was lucky enough to get into Murdoch uh, straight out of high school. Mm-hmm. studied there, went back to visit my um, ancestral home back in Yorkshire for a couple of years. Oh, lovely. Um, straight out of uni and then came back to Australia. But I got really disenchanted with being um, a general vet. I guess my husband's a vet as well. Right. And that was in the bad old days of not having um, many emergency centres. There was one in mm. Perth at that stage, but we were having to do on-call on weekends. and it's very, very difficult um, yeah. to maintain a really nice lifestyle. Yeah. And I think that I also got um, a little uh, disenchanted with lots of parts of general practice veterinary medicine. I'm, I'm not a great surgeon. I really don't like things dying. Um, <laughs> so, that you know, gradually I was weaning out things yeah. that I could do as a vet that I loved. And I, I always had an interest in dermatology. I did yep. a special topic in dermatology back at uni and I was lucky enough to um, be accepted for the residency, Mandy Burroughs' very first resident um, back oh, at wow. Murdoch um, to do my postgrad stuff. So, yeah, that, that's how I ended up there. Wow. And now these days, so you worked at Murdoch for a while after you became a specialist? Yes, I was there for nearly 10 years, I think, together okay. with Mandy. So we were quite a formidable team, which was yeah. really good. Yeah, and then children came into the scene, um, and so that makes um, life get a little bit more interesting, and it has to be a little bit more flexible, I think. Yeah. So now I have my 
own business um, and I work out of a number of different general practice vet clinics. So it's quite a a different model Mm. to staying localised in one specialist centre. And it really, it's shown me a different side of specialist work. Um, I'm really lucky that dermatology can be quite mobile. I've only got a few little bits of equipment that I take around with me. But the most important thing for me is I'm actually there with the referring vets right by my side and with the referring nurses. And and it's a really lovely um, sort of mutually beneficial environment that we we learn things from each other. So that's great. Yeah, right. And so when you're having these consultations, does the referring vet actually sit in on the consultation as well? Yeah, sometimes they actually do. And and that's the ones that they they get the most benefit out of. I mean, standard itchy dogs are standard itchy dogs, Mm. but very complex cases that have been really troubling and frustrating vets for a long time. It's really nice for them to have that that three-way involvement with us. So Yeah, that's that's very unique, that model. And certainly Mm. um, I know that some other uh, fields of specialty well, in Sydney, are starting to roam around a lot more, definitely the surgeons. And I know that there is a practice in Sydney that's um, starting to offer medicine consultations that roam around. Is that sort of mm. growing in Perth as well with other specialties? Um, not not so much at the moment. It did for a little while, but um, there's this I think dentistry is one of the ones that, that roams around a little bit and obviously some um, imaging as well, ultrasounds, mm, yeah, um, course, has been yeah. around for a really long time. Yeah. But it, it also is something that you don't expect when you are based in a specialty practice. When you go out into a general practice setting, a lot of clients have that that fear of going somewhere new and, and yeah. until you're you're there and you know they like to see the yeah. receptionist that always says hi how's Bobby going today yeah. and they like to know where to park and they you know everything's very known and not quite as scary for them which is something I never understood until I hopped out of that specialty practice. Yeah so, that's yeah. right and it's already scary enough for them seeing a specialist sometimes because they're worried about you know their pet's health and and having that all being conducted in in a familiar, safe environment. You, you're right. It just takes so much of the fear away from it, the stress. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think we did used to underestimate that. So it's it's nice to be able to offer specialist level service, but in a nice, comfortable environment, yeah. for them, which is good. Yeah, that's that's great. And in terms of your your current role um, as a veterinary dermatologist. Is there any main interests which you've developed that you are sort of known for, you specialise in, um, or do you like to see anything and everything? Um, I, I, I pretty much see anything and everything really. Obviously, the, the major component of dermatology practice is based around a- allergies and mm-hmm. um, all the additional things that come along with that, with infections. But I certainly did my research project in um, a very niche immune-mediated disease, um, mm-hmm. which only occurred in one particular breed. So most people have never even heard of it, which is obviously not very common in Western Australia. At what the was it, Sharon? Um, so that's exfoliative cutaneous lupus erythematosus in the German <laughs> shorthead pointer. Wow. How's that for I don't think I learned that at uni. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you didn't read my paper. Goodness, I'm disappointed. <laughs> I'll have to read it as follow-up homework. Look, look it up. It, it is an absolute doozy. It, I think um, I, I gained an interest in that because of a patient that I saw, and yeah. he was my my very first patient um, 
I'd ever seen with this disease and managed to track down a few of his siblings. So there's a, a strong right. genetic link, obviously, yep. and took it a bit further. I was lucky enough to go over to um, the guru of autoimmune diseases or immune-mediated diseases, uh, Thierry Olivery, and he's in North Carolina mm. and was able to go into his research lab and perform all of the um, research sort of um, studies to um, quantify a lot of the changes that we could see in these clinical cases that I'd seen, but it did highlight for me that research is not my major field of interest. Yeah. <laughs> I'm much more a clinician. Yeah. Um, I, like I love on. building, yeah, and building the relationships with yeah, the clients. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, that's a really important part in dermatology for me. So, absolutely, yeah. because, I mean, at the end of the day, you're you're there to do the diagnostics and give them the treatment plan, but it's in their hands after that, largely. Yeah. Um, yes, so you've got definitely. to have that that strong relationship with them so that they, you know, adhere to your plan and and come back and see you and and you know do all the follow ups that are that are required for a proper resolution or or you know proper management of whatever condition they have. Uh, absolutely, and I think that the key for dermatology, and I, I'd say this and used to say this to the students back at Murdoch, that it is all about communication. It's not neuroscience or anything particularly. Um, physically challenging. It's about being able to communicate to mm. the people where the problem's lying, what they can do to help, because a lot of it is what they're doing um, yeah. or what they're not doing, um, and just trying to get them on board um, to be able to do the best for their pet. And I'm, I'm often staggered at the lengths that people will go to and the things that they will do. And I think, gosh, I, I really couldn't do half of this. But they're, they're really incredibly motivated and it does yeah. make a big difference. Oh, wouldn't you want every client to be like that? That would make our life yeah. so much easier. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. That's the joys of specialty practice. You do get to um, be able to be a little bit picky and choosy. So yeah, that's nice. yeah. Oh, that's excellent. And in terms of, um, you know, providing your, your clients a, a good sort of structure for a take-home treatment plan, do you tend to give them uh, you know, a written handout? Do you have a templated um, handout that you give them for certain conditions or is it all sort of verbally communicated? Oh, absolutely written handouts as well. I think, um, and you know, I can't quote the exact study, but I think there was a, um, a study that was done in human medicine that people only really retain about 30% mm. of the information that is verbally communicated with you. And certainly in my experiences with my own medical specialists and my children's specialists, that, that absolutely, there's so much that can get thrown at you. You come away thinking, oh, what was it that they said about such and such? Absolutely. So um, I have a number of templates that um, are, you know, fairly standard. Obviously, there's a lot of repetitive conditions and then a, a written discharge summary. Um, I'm very old school, actually, <laughs> pen and paper. And, oh, that's um, nice have that down to tweak and fine-tune about, okay, so this is a suggestion for that particular shampoo and that particular medication to stop the scratching and that particular antibiotic and so on and so on and so on. Amazing. And in terms of sort of going back to what, what we want to focus on today, which is barrier mm. health, in terms of your general approach to that issue, can you just take us through um, sort of one of the, you know, um, I guess the, the common treatment structure or plan that you give to most of your patients when it comes to improving their barrier function? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that um, this is an area that we've certainly as dermatologists been focusing on um, a lot more over the last few years since we've identified how critical the role um, of barrier dysfunction can be. So it's very much a 
sort of multi-strategy approach um, in the, the patients that have barrier dysfunction that obviously have underlying allergies, they you can't just magically repair that and fix mm. it. It has to be a, a long-standing, um, slow, incremental kind of approach. And I guess that, you know, traditionally we're dealing with the symptoms of the itch and that, yep. that's a, a logical sort of start. Yep. And then quite often they get a degree of secondary infection. So we're really good at dealing with that um, with, with various different shampoos or oral antimicrobials. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of trying to repair or to rejuvenate or replenish the barrier, um, there are lots of different approaches. And I guess each individual patient, it depends on what the client is wanting to get from it. So, I mean, we can certainly utilise various different diets which are enriched with various different fatty acids, omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids. And that's a logical, really good place to start. Mm-hmm. Not so much from a food allergy, but really as a as a baseline, highly nutritious and well-supplemented diet. Um, we can use a variety of different topical shampoos and conditioners and lotions. And again, you've got to marry up the requirements for treating the um, secondary infections Mm. that are there um, or whether we're just cleansing the skin, whether we're removing allergens, whether we're trying to nourish and and replenish the skin in a conditioning sort of um, point of view as well. Um, The other way that we can utilize sort of topical products is by some of the um, spot-ons that are available. And um, we're a little bit limited in Australia um, in terms of the number that we've got available to us, Um, but we are lucky enough to to have some and that's really good and really, um, Mm -hmm. really effective for individual patients. But we do have to balance out the needs of the client and the patients. And if this dog is swimming twice a day yeah. every day which a lot of dogs in western australia are either at the beach or at the river yeah, that's right we really need to bear that in mind um in terms of the the best outcome for the client um and the best outcome for the patient yeah. as well um and of course we can do oral supplementation um so supplementing omega-3s and omega-6s um with either sort of a liquid formulations or capsule formulations so not every patient can do or will do or wants to do all All of those things all the time. And there's no cookie-cutter approach, really. Um, It it is really important to communicate, well, these are all the options. What's going to suit you? What are you going to do? What what would you be happy doing? And some of my clients say, everything, all of it, I'll do Mm. it, whatever it takes. But that's a very rare specialist kind of client. Um, And I think we need to talk to our clients and, and listen to them more um, to, to get the, the best outcome for them. There's no point just going here, do all of this. Yeah, that, that's, that's right. Come about. And do you ever have those clients who sort of say yes to everything, but then when they actually realise the work that it takes to adhere to that plan, they they come back to you and say, well, can we take a bit of a different approach because this is taking up half my life? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I think it's actually better if they're honest about those yeah. things. Um, some people come back and go, yes, I was doing everything. And, you know, I'm a bit of a say it like it is person, as you've well experienced. <laughs> and I say, okay, 
let's be honest here. You're seriously not doing X, Y, and Z all the time. And then they sort of fess up and I'm like, look, that's fine. I couldn't even do half of that. So, you know, it is just getting a little bit of uh, uh, honest communication backwards and forwards. And you, you do have to tweak and fine tune. But I think the essence is being able to communicate how important this is um, for the the long-term replenishment of that skin and allowing that skin to do its job and fighting off things the best that mm. it possibly can. It's yeah. not going to just be about, here, have this itchy medication. If we can make that skin barrier stronger and more able to um, repel off the allergens, repel in off the, first the place. secondary yeah. infections in the first place, yeah. it actually doesn't reverse that process, but it will slow down and it will stop that kind of rampaging effect that you you end up. And, you know, we're heading into spring. We're all very exposed to um, those patients that just sort of fall apart um, yeah. over the, the spring and the summer sort of time frame. Yeah, no, absolutely. And in terms of those patients that you see that come in with an active secondary infection, do you mm. always, mm. Do you always want to treat that first and foremost before you start addressing the barrier health problem or do you tend to sort of do them both concurrently? Well, I think it's actually important to do it concurrently because um, we do need to be mindful of the um, uh, treating the infection. You may actually compromise the barrier. So if you're inappropriately selecting, you know, say shampoo or a lotion or if they're using I don't know, some of the weird and wonderful things that, that people sometimes say, oh, the breeder told me to use X or I've Tea been tree using, oil, straight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, good old warm mix, Martha Gardner's <laughs> yeah. warm mix, that sort of thing. Sorry, Martha. Um, but, you know, that that's incredibly stripping. It's made yeah. to take out oils. So sometimes you can actually make things worse, n- not deliberately, but just accidentally by not being mindful of preserving that barrier function um, at all times. But there, there does need to be that balance between well, what's, what's the highest priority for that patient at that given point in time. Yeah, absolutely. And often what's the highest priority for the client? And usually it's, can you please make my dog stop itching and stop smelling right yes. now? Yes. <laughs> yes. Which exactly. is always a challenge. And what's your approach to treating the skin infections? Do you culture every patient or do you just perform cytology? Um, Are you reaching for oral medications always or are you trying to avoid oral antibiotics um, if you can? Can you just give us a bit Mm. of an idea of your approach? Mm. Mm, That's a really big subject and it's certainly um, becoming increasingly more important with the degree of resistance that we're facing and touch wood, which I'll need to find. Mm -hmm. um, I am blessed not to be in a situation um, the same as some of the East Coast dermatologists where the methicillin resistant staph is is a a severe problem. Mm. Um, So I do not culture first-line patients with first-line infections every time. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, that's reserved for more um, non-responsive or very recurrent, um, and this is talking on the skin, of mm-hmm. course. Yeah. Um, cytology is still the mainstay for me, um, yeah. and in the majority of cases, we're, you know, we're dealing with um, a, a staphylococcus infection. So, generally, for me, topical treatment is a, a really strong priority, or mm-hmm. if we do need to use uh, oral antimicrobials, then I, I wouldn't ever use them on their own. So providing that topical support is a constant sort of um, feature for all of my patients. Mm-hmm. And what I try to do is is make it as practical as I can for them. If they say to me, look, I'm not going to be able to wash this dog once a week mm. or once 
every three days, at least if they've told me that at the beginning, we can come up with some other strategies and, and yeah. leave on lotions and wipes and those sorts of things become yeah. really important in, in that balance between what's realistic for that particular client. Absolutely. And when you're reaching for antimicrobial shampoos as part of your topical therapy plan, do you always like to follow them up with a, you know, a conditioner that supplies moisturising factors so we're addressing the barrier health at that stage or do you sort of wait until the infection's cleared up before you start doing that? Again, that's a tricky one to answer for every patient. I mm. guess there's a real balance and I'm just sort of flicking through the patients that I've seen in the last week and, and there is a real balance. Some of them are really greasy and mm. sticky and gruesome and it's very counterintuitive for the owner to then go, oh, and I'm going to put a moisturiser yeah, on here. Absolutely. So sometimes there is that balance to say, no, you know what, we're, we're just going to get rid of this and, and we'll see you in a few weeks' time and then we'll readdress at that stage. But yep. some other patients who, you know, who are visibly dry, then it's a little bit easier to be able to say, okay, we're working on this simultaneously. Let's see how they go adding in this conditioner as well. So yep. again, it's hard to be really cookie cutter and, yeah. and that's a bit of the art of, of doing veterinary science as opposed to yes. the, the standard sort of medicine scientific science. Yeah, no, that's right. But will you start all of them with oral fatty acids, whether as part of an enriched diet or a supplement from that first consult? Um, generally not at the first consult because often they are completely overwhelmed yeah. with everything that I need to get them to do, yep. everything that I've talked about. To be honest, I'm, I'm kind of lucky in that most of my patients that are referred to me have come from exceptionally good GP practices where they're already on fatty acids. Oh, so good. if it's not something new, then we definitely don't stop them. We might tweak the dose a little bit. Um, I'm often a little bit more vigorous in my dosing. Um, but uh, I, I am quite lucky uh, along those lines. But if they haven't been on them, usually it's not that first consult for me because to be honest, they, they can get a little bit overwhelmed with that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I found that when I was in practice as well, that sometimes you've got to just take it step by step. And once they're seeing those initial results, then you can start to talk to them about, okay, well, this is what we need to do long-term to prevent this from getting to this situation in the future. Absolutely. And and I think that in terms of um, dermatology, it is very much about long-term and chronic mm. care and maintaining that the skin in the best possible um, form and structure and barrier that it can be yeah. to let it do its job by yeah, itself. Yeah, absolutely. And for those patients that are prone to those secondary infections, do you often recommend ongoing topical antimicrobial therapy once the initial infection is cleared up as a sort of a preventative strategy? Yeah, that, that's a really good question, actually. And I think that... Um, it's something that, again, depends a little bit on the patient, but those dogs that are very prone to having like flaring with infection more so than just flaring with the itch, it, it does play a really critical role mm. because the least amount of antimicrobials systemically that we have to use, yeah. the better off everyone is. Absolutely. And that's the perfect role for topical products mm -hmm. um, and being able to sell that message that way to the owner. You know, this is the best for the dog and this is the best for you, yeah. even financially and, yep. and from a compliance point of view. If we can just keep up this management strategy and make sure the infections don't just keep coming back all the time, then we um, are in a much better position to um, keep keep the skin as stable as we can. So not everybody you know, is on board with that and not every patient needs to 
have an antimicrobial all the time and that's where you would just use a you know a nourishing cleansing based shampoo initially mm-hmm. with with the conditioner so it doesn't have to be medicated in inverted commas but when you do choose the medicated shampoo are you generally asking them to wash once a week On average, most of my um, allergy-based patients were usually at once a week Mm -hmm. or if they're really lovely and stable, once a fortnight. Um, For the patients that are swimming a lot um, in in Perth and often that, as we said, is is daily or sometimes twice daily, I don't tend to get them to wash with the shampoo after every swim, but just a gentle hose off and then to be able to put on some, you know, leave-on conditioner or leave-on lotion after that yep. is also a nice balance and a nice mix. And what sort of ingredients are you looking for in these more nourishing shampoos and conditioners? Is there anything in particular that you really reach for every time? Are you able to just tell us a bit about how you make your choices? Um, I guess that... Um, For me, working in a number of different veterinary practices, I'm also making choices based on what is present within Mm. the clinic as well. Um, And obviously, I try to have a bit of an influence over, well, here are my favourites and what you can do. Um, But it it is um, important that there's a degree of um, autonomy within each of the practices to be able to select the products that they use. Um, Obviously, that that active ingredients are... um, the, the most important that we can and, and the old classics, oatmeal and aloe vera are, are well and truly there. And mm-hmm. I guess what a lot of people um, don't tend to recognise is that some dogs actually get irritated by those products. So the seemingly, right. oh, but it should be soothing, um, isn't necessarily the case. And I guess one of my children is really irritated by oatmeal. Oh, so right. I know that from a mummy's perspective yeah. that what you try to do that's a, a good thing might not always be the case. So, I mean, if we're able to use various different um uh, sort of topical ceramides mm-hmm. and some of the phytosphingosines, which is always the word that I have to think very <laughs> yes, carefully before I start <laughs> pronouncing it. And as many of the um, the lipids um, yeah. and the fatty acids, they are they are the cri- the critical ones overall. So um, it, it's really that nice balance between being able to you know, utilize the shampoo correctly. That's the other factor, yeah. and then utilize the conditioner. And I, I love the lotions and the wipes as well. They do yeah. they do make life very easy. And I guess the difference between the shampoo being used correctly. Are you talking about in terms of leaving it on for the five minutes to allow those you know those those active ingredients to absorb properly? Absolutely, um, and not just sort of um, plonking the shampoo into you know one direct area mm. on the back of the neck or on the back. And then doing a you know a half-hearted attempt at sort of slushing all around the the rest of the, the yeah. dog, um, and people um, don't. I guess we make assumptions. People know how to do it, but it is important to communicate those sorts of things. And that's where the role of awesome veterinary nurses and, and technicians really comes into the play. Being yeah. able to assist people with those really practical things. Yeah. Um, that, that can make a huge difference um, to the dog and having that penetration time. And it is a long time when you're yeah, standing there. Sometimes up to 10 minutes, yeah. Absolutely. With the medications, that's right. Um, mm. And if you have a reluctant uh, bather, and, that, and that's where being able to make recommendations um, to do it within the clinic or how, if there's an associated sort of um, grooming um, yeah. sort of parlour that's that's next to the clinic or they can within provide the, the clinic shampoo. or someone... Absolutely, you, using those um, using those facilities to optimise the outcomes. That's really what you do look for. Yeah, absolutely. I I used to recommend when I was in practice that people would start with the belly, 
um, and between the the um, front and the back legs and then work their way up. And hopefully by the time they got up to the top, they'd had at least five minutes contact time on the belly where, you know, a lot of the time the, the main sort of skin lesions existed. <laughs> yeah, no, and that's great advice. And sort of with the, the paws, I usually say, well, you know, put it on all of them and then give give them a bit of a pedicure um, <laughs> for, for, you know, a minute to, well, you say two minutes and that then translates to about one minute. Yes. But, you know, as they're at least focusing on four paws, it, it helps to spend that time a little bit more wisely. So. Yeah. And in terms of the relationship between human eczema or human atopic dermatitis Mm. and canine atopic dermatitis. I know there's quite a lot of research in the human literature regarding the importance of filaggrin and mutations in that gene and also deficiency in certain ceramides. Are you able to comment on whether we feel that that is a, a relevant issue worth addressing in canine populations as well? Yeah, that, that's, that's certainly really um, important factors. And I guess um, there, there's very limited studies done in mm. veterinary patients, particularly dogs. Yeah. Um, very small studies, very pilot-based studies with really low numbers of patients that um, were involved. But I guess what was really important to take out of them is that they were consistent with the human studies. Yeah. So um, for people that aren't aware, filaggrin is a, a protein. So I sort of explain it as an ultra-structural protein, mm-hmm. something that we obviously can't see. It's part of that scaffolding that's sitting within the skin cells. And um, in terms of people with ATP and dogs with ATP, the amount of filaggrin that is present within cells is substantially lower. Mm. And also in the really um, small studies that have been done, the, the dogs that have this, that have ATP, the, um, the staining patterns, so therefore the distribution of the filaggrin throughout the cells is really scattered and really mm. sparse. So if you've already got a skin cell that its scaffolding is a bit dysfunctional, then that skin cell is not going to work optimally. No. The ceramides are sort of, if we think about them as the mortar around the skin cell, and that's a very old brick and mortar type of um um, theory or explanation for mm-hmm. the structure of the skin, but I, I think it helps explain particularly to clients as well. Ceramides are known to be um, reduced levels in people with ATP, yes. but also in dogs as well. And the um, both the the amount of the ceramides, but also the the structure of the um, the actual little, uh, I think of them as like a stack of coins that should be in this beautiful, perfect linear in between each of the skin cells, they've just gone all haywire and and all over the place. So if your brick's not very stable and your mortar's not very stable, then your whole brick wall is not going to be very stable and it's not going to be doing a good job at blocking out all the things that it's meant to be doing. Plus, it's also leaking a little bit of that really essential sort of water and moisture. So essentially, that, that whole skin becomes... a you know, more dry, um, not necessarily visibly dry, but in, in some patients it can be very mm. dry, very flaky, very scaly. That's a really nice way of putting it. I think I'm going to use that myself. It's, it certainly makes it very clear. 
in terms of the, you know, the, the structural changes and the, the functional changes that can actually then result in these barrier dysfunctions and how that mm. can then relate to what we see clinically. So thanks. That's, a, that's an amazing description. Well, Sharon, we... I, I won't take claims for creating <laughs> that description. Just put that one in you, there. You, but... you worded it so eloquently, though. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We are running out of time, Sharon, unfortunately, as much as I would love to continue chatting. Um, before we go, just a couple more things. Are you able to share with our listeners where we can find you if people would like to come and see you? Um, it's uh, Yes, I'm happy to share that. I think that um, the best place to um, contact me is actually through my wonderful receptionist. Mm-hmm. Um, she maintains um, a, a, a kind of a, a list of which clinics that I will be on certain days and those Perfect. things. Obviously, I'm, I'm based in Perth. Yep. Um, I do occasionally go slightly out into the um, out outside the Perth CBD mm-hmm. areas um, and emailing is always the, the most uh, efficient way of getting through to us. So Excellent. I don't know if I'm, yeah, and have you got a website, Sharon? I, I do have a website. It's very simplistic. I'm not very um, technically <laughs> um, gifted in terms of those things, but that does have um, all the um, detailed information and it's perthvetderm.com. Oh, thank you so much. And just finally, I would love to thank you so much for being our very first guest on our new Pure Animal podcast. I really enjoyed discussing everything skin with you and there's certainly been some fantastic advice that you have given to our listeners. Just one last question. Um, coming into summer, what are what is the main um, change that you're going to be asking some of your clients to make to ensure that their pet skin is as robust as possible coming into allergy season? Mm, that that is that's a really good question, and I think the key, particularly in Western Australia, is all about the bathing um, and. Uh, managing their swimming, managing their lifestyle and making sure that they are keeping the local skin health as best they can. So we often up the frequency or we change around the the type of um, product that we're using um, just to try and give that skin that sort of extra protection before they're getting challenged by the huge number of allergens and much more likelihood of getting the the secondary infections. Thank you so much, Sharon. I will let you get back to your busy day. I um, I hope that you continue to enjoy the beautiful Perth weather and we will chat to you soon. That's great. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. It's been lots of fun. This is Pure Animal Podcast and I'm Dr. Sarah Howard.